Blog Talk Radio. Hi there, I'm Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio, and this show is a celebration of baby boomers who are embracing life as we grow older. And speaking of embracing life, everyone loves a gripping tale of intrigue and suspense, and few writers can claim to keep millions of readers, actually over 150 million of us, eagerly turning pages like best-selling author David Baldacci. David's just added another book, to his already impressive list. It's called Walk the Wire, and he's joining us today to share all about it. So welcome, David. Thank you. It's great to be back. Well, and yes, it has been my pleasure. I mentioned before we went on there that I've been lucky enough to interview you on a number of occasions, and I would just like to say as a huge fan, of course, uh, your books are not only wonderful bestsellers, but what amazes me, too, is you create such an extraordinary list of characters, each of them with a different background and different idiosyncrasies. But I think Amos Decker is one of my favorites, and I think he's one of a lot of people's favorites. So why do you think uh, Amos Decker, uh, a.k.a. Memory Man, resonates with so many of us? You know, physically, he's larger than life. He's a big hulking guy who used to be a professional athlete and had just Life was changed after a vicious hit on the field that resulted in brain trauma and it gave him hypothalamusia, which is perfect recall. I think, you know, he he is um, a sympathetic character because people know what happened to his family and also to him. His personality was changed when his brain was changed. And so he has a lot of emotional baggage. He can be annoying at times because he has no social cues and he'll walk out while you're still talking to him. And, you know, but he has this thirst for the truth and for justice. He wants people who have done bad things to be punished. And he's sort of a lunch pail, blue collar, working class kind of guy. And he goes to his job every day and does it to the best of his ability and works harder than anybody else. And he really cares about the truth. So I think that people appreciate that about him and sort of forgive some of the other traits that aren't as attractive. Um, but he's a complicated guy. And I think that people appreciate those nuances. Well, yeah, he's complicated for sure, but you're right. He, you know, his heart is in the right place, even though perhaps his manners could use a little, a little improvement. <laughs> but what is also fascinating to me is hyperthymesia. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I yes. looked, just recently looked that up, and I've read some different statistics, but the latest I saw was it's, there's 60 proven cases of it in the world. And I want to know how you found out about it and, of course, how it was, must have been intriguing to you, but how Amos Decker kind of came, came to life. I, it came through a sort of confluence of things. So I read a book years ago called Born on a Blue Tuesday, which is one person's autobiographical account of having synesthesia, uh, I think after a brain trauma where their sensory pathways were rewired and so they crossed over and commingled and I think that they, they saw days of the week and numbers and all that and vivid colors, which often happens with synesthesia, which Decker also has. And I started reading more about, you know, brain traumas and what they can do to the mind and how it sort of rewires itself and doing and doing so opens up other parts of the brain that maybe you weren't utilizing to its fullest extent. The brain is a very complicated thing. You know about as much about the brain, you know, how it works as doctors did back in, you know, 1900. Um, and I was a football fan for a long time and Decker was a football player and obviously but there's a lot of brain trauma, unfortunately, in football, and you have CTEs and all these yeah. other debilitating illnesses and injuries that come from that. 
So I thought, you know, what if I have a, a character who was a football player and could plausibly have gotten a brain trauma on the field as he did and come out of it with hyperthermia, which can happen. And that, that way I have a guy, a detective with a great uh, skill and strength of his perfect memory, but also one with a lot of emotional baggage and a lot of interesting idiosyncrasies that I think readers can appreciate and pick up on. So really that's how I started to form him as Deckard's character, this big physically imposing guy who is nothing like you would think he would be if you just looked at him from a distance. Um, he's very complicated. You know, he struggles at times, oftentimes having to be a new person inside the same body. Um, which I think people can relate to and sympathize with. So really a confluence of my interest in the brain and in football and traumatic brain injuries all came together to sort of create his character. Well, he is a really a fascinating character, as are all of yours. But again, I there's a special place in my heart for good old Amos, and I think a lot of your readers feel that way too. So let's talk about what happens to Amos and some of the the adventures, the multiple adventures he encounters in Walk the Wire. And it starts out as uh, as a number of your books do, but this one uh, with a really gruesome murder. So tell us a little bit about yes. what about the beginning of the book and as much as the as you'd like to share. So they are called up to London, North Dakota, because the body of a young woman has been found by a hunter who was out looking for a wolf who had been targeting some cattle. And the strange thing about it is that she has been autopsied. Uh, even before the police got to her, someone performed a postmortem on this on this woman, and obviously very brutal. So they're called in, but Decker is confused because, yes, it's a brutal murder, but murders are typically handed by local police. So why is the FBI being called in on something like that? And uh, he realizes that probably it has to do with the identity of the woman. The more they find out about Irene Kramer, the victim, they realize that maybe, you know, she's not who everybody thought that she was. Maybe she has some importance to the federal government. And it turns out that she indeed does. And as he goes into the world of the fracking and, you know, this boom town where people are flocking to, to make as much money as possible. You have two other elements that I combine into the story that are based on real life things. One is this air force facility, eye in the sky that marches after nuclear missiles coming our way is deployed in the 1960s and actually a facility like that in Eastern North Dakota and a religious sect, um, that are based on the Hutterites, which is a German religious sect based on communal living that has existed for centuries and came across this country centuries ago. And they, in real life, this religious sect bought some land around this super secret Air Force facility because the Air Force decided to sell it. And so they're farming next to this eye in the sky. And I read that story and I thought, this would be really intriguing. So I'm going to take those elements from eastern North Dakota, plop them in the middle of fracking land in, in western North Dakota, and call up Amos Decker kind of and figure out what's going on here. So I was just reading a newspaper account of that. It really got the story going for me. You know, I was going to ask you that because, again, you do have a wide range of characters and various plot lines. And they're, in, I mean, they're obviously interesting, but they're not necessarily what you would think is typical, you know, like the, the, the foggy streets of London or something like that. And I'm talking about London, right. England. But here you come up with, so these these insight, or these flashes of uh, creativity or whatever just kind of hit you when you're reading articles or when you're doing things like that. That, to me, is very fascinating, David. 
Yeah, you know, I never turn it off. Story ideas and whatever can come to me at any time, anywhere. And I'm receptive to that because I, that's what I want. I want to go out into the world and things will spark my interest and enthusiasm. And that's where a lot of my ideas come from, things that I see, things that I read about, and just listening to people, snatches on the television, you know, a story that might come out, hearing something on the radio. You just never never know what might spark your imagination. And uh, those two elements that I read about that story certainly did, and it, it just everything came together nicely in the story, and then and the end result was Walk the Wire. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is, as in other books with various other plot lines, but you write with great authority about fracking. Now, here you are, a famous author. I'm sure you have connections with people that you can find out of. But how do you do research into these areas that, you know, might be a little difficult for some of us to find out more about? Right. I have, you know, I've been to some fracking sites in Texas where fracking is also a booming industry. And I read a lot about it. I talked to people who work in the industry. So through, you know, being physically there and seeing what goes on and then reading and talking to people, I was able to really distill a mountain of information down to the exact amount you needed to know in order to follow the story. I did leave most of it out. I'm not writing a textbook about fracking, but I wanted you to be able to follow along in a way that would make sense. You know, so I did it in little bits and pieces here and there, some dialogue and some narration and some observation. And I had one key element, a family member of Decker's that he runs into up there that works for a fracking operation. And he knows how it works. And through dialogue, he's able to explain sort of in layman's terms how it all works together. But you needed to know that as a reader to sort of follow along the plot. So I had to give you some of that. Yeah, well, and two, and you bring in some old favorites of ours. And, and another thing about this particular uh, novel with uh, my buddy Amos Decker is that he starts to evolve a little as a person, too. Yes, he does. You get to see a more personal side of him. This introduction of his family and his brother-in-law uh, also allows us, through his his views, to see Decker pre-brain trauma and what he was like back then. And it also forces Decker to sort of, rethink his relationship with his sisters and the rest of his remaining family who are still alive and how he sort of has abandoned them in ways. And he has to really have it take a hard look at himself and see, you know, what sort of a brother am I and what should I do going forward? And at the end of the novel, you see him make one decision and it was sort of a personal evolution for him to have arrived. It was difficult. It was very hard for him. This is not, none of this is easy, uh, but he's trying to get there. Well, and in addition to the well, the emotional and you know human sides of the components of the story, there are again lots of lots of twists and turns in this. And I remember from interviewing you before, you don't create an outline necessarily. I mean, you just keep all this in your head, which I find yeah, this... you know, I find it challenging as a reader <laughs> to remember all this and be surprised. You as the author, wow. Yeah, this was, you know, it was definitely a complicated plot. There's a sort of a three-headed plot uh, with everything going on. It had, everything had sort of a common nexus, uh, but they were also were distinct subplot lines. So you had one ending and then another ending and then a final ending. Um, and that's just the way it sort of worked out and worked out in my head as I was going along, developing and letting it grow organically. And I'm not sure I could have done that if I had outlined this all and then written from the outline, because I don't think I would have gotten to that depth. Uh, I think I would have missed a couple of levels, and that's why I think sometimes epiphanies and revelations are a good thing when you're writing. 
Absolutely. And I have to say, I've accused you of this before, but I think you have a case of hyperthymesia yourself to be able to get all this straight. <laughs> and I know you're, you work on other novels and all this. Anyway, I, I, I think you are well-deserving of all the success you've had. But I want to spend, we've got another couple minutes, and I want to spend it going on to a different area of your life. And that is, of course, this wonderful organization you've created with your wife, Michelle, the Wish You Well Foundation. It's an important organization, and especially now. So tell us a little bit about the Wish You Well Foundation and some of the things that you have accomplished with that. We fund literacy organizations and and initiatives across the country. Um, Last year we funded about 40 programs over, I think, 23 states. Um, We poured millions of dollars into the effort, and um, our mission at the Wish You Well Foundation is eradicate illiteracy in the United States. I know what books and reading meant to me as a young person. I want everybody to have access to books and reading and being able to read at at the highest level possible. We also work with local area food banks, and we ship out books that my fans donate on book tour to food banks across Mm. the country because if you have low literacy skills, uh, you're often food challenged as well. So our other goal is to fill up as many homes with books as as we possibly can. I just think it's wonderful. And I don't know, has the virus impacted anything? I mean, I just think, too, now that we're – most of us, if not, are sheltering in place and, you know, reading and having some way to – not only entertain yourself, but enlarge your mind and, you know, create, you know, spark your creativity is so important. It is very much important. I think now is a really good time to, to pick up a book and lose yourself a little bit from everything that's going on around us. We need to stay informed and all that, and we need to follow the advice of healthcare experts, but there's nothing to say that we can't spend an hour or two a day, you know, just escaping into the imagination of somebody else's what you do when you open a book. Absolutely. Well, speak. Speaking of the imagination of somebody else, I'm going to speak into yours. Any new novels in the pipeline? I'm working on two right now. One is a sequel to the Atlee Pine thriller from last year called A Minute to Midnight, and then I'm working on the sequel to One Good Deed uh, set in 1949 with Aloysius Archer and my crime the war gumshoe. So one week I'm in 2020, and the next week I'm in 1949. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't surprise me at all, David. Doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> Well, I know you have other people to talk to. I could keep you forever, but I want to be aware of that. And so thank you, David, so much for your time. Thank you. I always enjoy talking to you. Well, and also I want to thank David and tell your readers he's got an amazingly creative mind, as you can tell. And, uh, of course, you want to make sure that you get a copy of this latest must-read. It's called Walk the Wire, and uh, it is a real page-turner, I can tell you that, with one of our very favorites of David's creation. So until next time, this is Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio, saying I'll catch you later. Bye-bye.